And it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello, I'm Robert Polly, welcoming you to a musical edition of the 7th Avenue Project. On the show today, the trans-oceanic jazz of saxophonist Rudresh Mahanthapa. He's been tearing up the jazz scene for the last decade and a half, winning critical acclaim, audience polls, and lots of other honors, not only for his command of the jazz canon from bop to avant-garde, but also for his synthesis of jazz and South Indian classical music. And while jazz artists have been experimenting with Indian music going back to the 1960s, Rudresh has taken things way beyond the experimental stages. In groups like his trio, the Indo-Pak Coalition, he's practically created a new jazz idiom, where Indian and American styles come together so naturally, you can't tell where one leaves off and the other begins. And by the way, Rudresh and the Indo-Pak Coalition are coming to the Monterey Jazz Festival this week, and we'll be broadcasting the festival right here on KUSP. I'll give out more details later in this show. But getting back to Rudresh and what some have called his passage to India, he grew up in Boulder, Colorado, the American son of Indian immigrants. His parents occasionally played recordings of Indian devotional music, but like most kids around him, he was more interested in pop, rock, and other Western sounds. He took up alto sax in the fourth grade. His earliest influences on the instrument were R&B-style alto men like Grover Washington and David Sanborn. Later, he fell under the spell of Charlie Parker and John Coltrane, but it wasn't until he had what he calls an identity crisis in college that he became seriously interested in Indian music. Here's Rudresh Mahantapa describing that turning point in his life. You know, growing up in Boulder, Colorado, uh, I think it was just easier to, to consider myself white, and that seemed to work. <laughs> and it's funny because there were a few other kids who, who have gotten back in touch with who, who I went to school with who, who were also children of immigrants of different cultures, you know, Chinese-American, Japanese-American, and, and they all had kind of the same take, you know. It, it was just easy to think of yourself as white and, and somehow blend in, but I think all of us kind of had this moment when we were, you know, 18 or 19 or when we went off to college where we were suddenly like, oh, wait a minute, I'm not white. And, you know, the eye-opener for me was going to University of North Texas which is where I started my college. And there was a really significant African-American population there. And uh, that's when it kind of hit me. I was like, well, I'm not black, but I'm certainly not white. And so who am I exactly? You know, that was coupled with the fact that, you know, people saw my name and saw the color of my skin. I'm talking about my, my uh, fellow music classmates. And they kind of assumed that I was an expert on Indian music. Uh-huh. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> And, you know, that was a big fallacy, too. So, you know, there were a lot of things at play there because I had to discover Indian music on my own terms in a lot of ways. I definitely loved it and uh, found it as captivating as as all the the great jazz I was listening to. But I needed to be comfortable in my own skin before I jumped in. And, you know, the, the real important moment for me was I transferred to Berklee College of Music after a couple of years at North Texas. And Berkeley had decided to send a band to India to play at this uh, jazz festival that no longer exists, unfortunately. That, that was an incredibly great starting point for just kind of addressing who I am and finding a way to 
about that music at my own pace and my own way, and in a way that just made sense to me. And, and what year was that, Rudresh? That was 1994. I've read that you then made sort of an early attempt to bring jazz and Indian music together in your work uh, in 1996 when you were in Chicago, but it was premature for you? It was, you weren't ready for it? Yeah, it just, you know, for lack of a better phrase, it just it just felt really jive, you know? I just <laughs> feel like... I felt like I was putting someone on, that I was doing it for the sake of being Indian, which is absolutely what I've been trying to avoid, you know, this this idea of exoticism, really. So when did you make that move, though, for real? Well, it was kind of, you know, it was a gradual process. I mean, I guess my issue with someone wanting me to do something overtly Indian was that I, I felt like I was doing something that really did have a lot of integrity that was very much coming out of Indian music as an inspiration with piano, bass, and drums, you know? And I felt like I did that for a while, you know? I feel like all, a lot of my quartet music is very much uh, based on some real fundamental concepts from Indian music. It's, it's not as obvious. And I guess that's the thing. It doesn't need to be obvious because I'm not obviously Indian. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, the, the music as, is as hybrid a, as I am, uh, you know, on an everyday basis. Mm. So, mm. yes, you know, I definitely stayed away from working with Indian classical musicians and, and Indian instruments. And I was really hung up on this, I, this idea of avoiding exoticism and not... Um, not selling my culture short, you know? I remember Ravi Shankar remarking about the concerts that he first performed in the U.S. in, in the 60s, you know, when Indian music was making its first big splash, right. uh, helped along by the counterculture and all kinds of mystical ideas of everything Indian. And he said people would be stoned and, you know, um, spaced out, etc. And they really weren't getting, you know, the music on its own terms. They were projecting a lot of fantasies onto the music in those days. I, I imagine that's exactly the kind of thing that you're afraid of. Absolutely. I, I don't want to be associated with any of that. You know, I think, <laughs> and that's why I avoid using, you know, when people talk about Indo-Jazz fusion, I, I cringe because I think of a lot of things from the 60s and 70s that were really kind of superficial combinations of musicians uh, that, you know, it was Western music with an Indian tinge, and it wasn't people really playing together. It was people in the same room playing next to each other, maybe. But it wasn't a real integration of of ideas and concepts. It was kind of a mishmash, kind of a collage. You know, it wasn't a a real blend. And you know, that had its its time and its place. I just, you, I, I, it's just important to me that that my music would not be perceived, you know, as being a continuation of of, of that line of thinking, you know. Um, what, what did you think, though, of, um, of say, John McLaughlin uh, and Shakti, uh, where he did play with some legitimately excellent Indian musicians like uh, El Shankar and uh, Zakir Hussain? Yeah, I mean, you know what? Shakti is really great. I, I don't really see Shakti as being... Um, an Indo-Jazz fusion project, really. Uh -huh. I mean, when I hear Shakti, it, it, it sounds like a South Indian ensemble to me. Uh -huh. Except, you know, McLaughlin is in there. Yeah. And, and you know, McLaughlin, he's not like trying to play bebop. All those guys are playing all those rhythms. I yeah. Mean, he's, you know, he he knows his, his Indian music, and he's 
you know, he's nailing that stuff, and and it's incredibly captivating. Yeah, that, that's always a funny thing. I'm excited. It's like, you know, Shakti's not a fusion project to me at all. It's it's an Indian classical ensemble that that that's been reworked a little bit. That has has a place in the jazz world because McLaughlin was involved. Mm-hmm. Um, because all those other guys, yeah, they're heralded Indian classical musicians for sure. So you're talking about your. Um early forays into uh, a sound that, that did bring together your background in jazz and your interest in Indian music. And I wanted to play something from an album of yours called Black Water um, that I guess came out in 2002. Right. Uh, this is a track called Balancing Act. So, Rajesh, uh, uh, tell us about, first of all, the title of this album, and then maybe something about the piece we're hearing. Well, Blackwater is an expression that you see come up in, in different periods of, of Indian history. There was a time when the Brits would send uh, essentially what were Indian political prisoners to the Andaman Islands. That journey of, of being shipped off there, like even Nehru was sent there. I mean, some very important Indian political figures were sent there. And that journey and, and that incarceration was, was referred to as Blackwater. But Blackwater also became a more general expression to describe South Asian emigration, you know, to the New World and losing one's ancestry and kind of creating a new identity. The idea of a Blackwater seems like a, kind of a gulf or a chasm separating you from the past. Exactly. Or, you know, I think in, in particular it kind of refers to what is the kind of the, the South Asian equivalent of the Middle Passage. Because, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, th- there were many South Asian slaves brought over at the same time as, uh, as, as African slaves, like, you know, to the Caribbean and, uh, you know, what ended up being the, uh, the Southeast United States. That's why you see so many South Asians and so many South Asian names, like in Trinidad, Jamaica. Mm. You know, and then I think that expression has is, is kind of become... You know, a general description of leaving one's South Asian ancestry behind or being open to it morphing into something else. So that, yeah, hence the, the title of the album. And then obviously the title of the tune, Balancing Act, is this idea of trying to, you know, balance the, the hybridity in oneself. I mean, for me, you know, getting back to this idea of how Indian am I, how American am I. Music 
basically, that tune is a great example of, of, of one of the many ways I've kind of tried to conceptually integrate, you know, jazz and Indian music. Uh, you know, the melodic content and, and the rhythmic cycle are, are actually all based on um, actually some, some North Indian rhythms and, uh, and a North Indian raga. And, uh, you know, but at the same time, it's this... Uh, you know, we are improvising like jazz musicians who, you know, <laughs> have uh, tried to absorb the history of jazz. Mm. And, and as you mentioned, this is um, this is with a you know traditional jazz ensemble and rhythm section. You haven't yet incorporated Indian instruments. Right. Exactly. It, it's with piano, acoustic, bass, and drums. I have to say, it, it is with a special bunch of people that are that are coming to the music with a very uniquely equipped background to to, to convey what I'm what I'm trying to convey. I, I think, I mean, first of all, the tune is incredibly difficult, so I think I'd be hard pressed to, to throw it in front of many rhythm sections. But uh, for example, you know, Vijay Iyer is playing piano on this track, and um, he and I have a long history of working together and have. Uh, similar upbringings and, and similar cultural backgrounds. And Elliot Cavie is playing drums, and, and Elliot is very well versed in, in a lot of uh, South Asian rhythms. And this is the Seventh Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly talking today to the saxophonist Rudresh Mahanthapa about his work combining jazz and Indian music. Rudresh spent about a decade developing that sound with fellow jazz musicians, like the quartet we just heard. His first performance with an Indian classical musician came in 2005 with the saxophone master Kadri Gopalnath. They went on to record a CD together called Kinsman, which came out in 2008. Rudresh had been fascinated with Gopalnath's music, ever since he'd heard one of his albums in college, and he finally got a chance to meet him when Gopal Nath performed a concert in Boston. And we just kind of hit it off, and uh, we only talked for a few minutes, but I said, you know, what do you think about trying to do something together sometime? And he thought that was an amazing idea, and I just kind of put it in the back of my head. Um, and then a few years later, uh, I ran into Rachel Cooper. She's the performing arts director at the Asia Society. And she's like, you know, what are you up to? Do you have any new ideas or new projects or something? And I just kind of off the cuff said, well, I want to do this thing with Katri Gopalnath. And she had just been in India and had just heard him play. And she was like, he is great. Let's talk. Let's make it happen. And so suddenly I, I was kind of, I was doing this thing that, <laughs> that uh, um, was exciting and terrifying and you know i just kind of had to throw myself into it and figure out how we were going to make some music that highlights both of our abilities but but also you know pushes some boundaries and, and pushes our own musical boundaries as well and um to create something that's again you know not jazz and not indian music but but something else something that's very much 21st century. So let's listen to an example from that album you did with Kadri Gopalnath, the, the album called Kinsman. And this is a tune called Ganesha. 
A lot of people will know who that is, the, the elephant-headed Hindu god, Ganesha. Um, and uh, let's, let's, let's listen a bit, and then we can talk about it. Sure. Rajesh, why don't you talk about that piece? You know, it really has a jazzy quality, of course. It's got this very cool sort of bluesy riff that you begin with. Right, well, it is a blues, actually. You know, it is, it's it's kind of a short form six bar blues in in seven, I guess. Uh, You know, again, in trying to kind of integrate these two, you know, amazing forms of music, I, I was, um, I thought it would behoove me to kind of go back to basics. So the first thing that struck me was like, well, it would be really cool to play a blues, you know, mm-hmm. and, and find a, a space where um, that works for, for everybody involved. So it does have this kind of, this bluesy riff that, that I'm playing, but also the thing is, the, the, the raga that it's based on, that you hear Kadri outline more, I mean, the first time I heard that raga, I was like, man, this is so bluesy. This has just a real soulful, bluesy collection of notes. So I saw kind of infinite possibilities there and how we could kind of make something that was simultaneously a blues and simultaneously... Um, this very traditional raga and this very traditional beat pattern of um, one of the common, well, somewhat common beat patterns you see in South Indian music is essentially three cycles of seven. It's like a 21 beat pattern. Mm-hmm. So you have like two cycles of 21, but it's also a blues. You know, if there's a an aura around Indian classical music, other than the, the mystical one we talked about earlier, um, it is of uh, real technical, you know, sophistication. I mean, um, I think a lot of people have the impression that Indian classical produces a lot of virtuosos and uh, some real monsters <laughs> on absolutely. their instruments. And, yeah, and, it, yeah, and it's absolutely. very intimidating. I mean, it, it's intimidating for people who don't know the, the musical system. Uh, I'm just wondering if you were intimidated to sit down with some of these guys. Well, I know I know that I have to bring my A game. I, I think <laughs> the most terrified I've been was I was part of this project called Miles from India. That was kind of an all-star band. It was all-star Indian musicians plus a lot of famous Miles Davis alumni. Oh wow! And me, <laughs> you know, I was kind of of neither camp, um, but you know, I, I was invited to be part of the project. But I don't know if you know. You Srinivas, the mandolin player? No, I don't. He's a South Indian mandolin player, and he's absolutely frightening, genius <laughs> musician. And there was this one part of the of the show where 
we had to trade. And it's like, I have to trade phrases with Srinivas? Like, <laughs> um, you know, most people would, you know, give their left arm to be in that, in that position. Like, oh my God, you know, I'm going to trade phrases with Srinivas. But like, man, I was terrified, you know? <laughs> when you trade with someone like that, is there... I mean, are they trying to throw some of the toughest stuff at you uh, and make it hard for you to respond? Or are they really sort of, are they generally kind of being nice and saying, okay, I'm going to pick some, some phrases that I know he can answer with? Oh, well, I certainly didn't feel the latter. <laughs> I mean, I felt like, you know, he, he, he was throwing down for sure, but it was, all, it, was, it was all with a lot of good humor and a lot of, and a lot of good fun. And, uh -huh. And he had a lot of respect for me too, which I was very flattered by. You know, like he, um, and he's just a you know a unique individual as well. But he, he knew that I could hang, so he kind of you know he kind of pushed me, and I turned around and tried to push him too. But yeah, that was pretty scary. Um, and there's a there's a point on the Kinsman album where Kadri and I trade, and yeah, you know he's he's throwing down some really difficult stuff. I was like. Oh my God! What am I going to play? But at some point, you have to say, "Well, I'm just going to play you know, for the best." Well, well, let's listen to a little of that back and forth between you and Kadri. I should ask you, you have, you have some pretty mean chops yourself on alto. When did you develop those? I mean, were you um, super intense as a kid, just practicing, 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 or did you get serious later and, and really, um, you know, develop your skills? When did, how did that come about? You know, that, that's a question I'm asked a lot, and I, I don't really have a good answer for that, because I don't remember really working on that. Um, <laughs> But I feel like if, if you can learn one fast Charlie Parker solo or one fast Coltrane solo or Johnny Griffin solo or something, by the time you're done with that process, if you can play that solo along with the recording, your chops are just uh, immediately uh, on a higher level than they were before you started. And I feel like you can get all of that from, from just trying to learn solos from albums. And I'm a big believer in in osmosis of, of sorts. I mean, that's kind of an oversimplification, but I think that you can kind of reach heightened senses of awareness and, and absorption if, if you're in the right mind frame to do so. And um, I think there was a semester at North Texas where the first thing I put on every morning as soon as I woke up was Johnny Griffin playing Cherokee on, mm, uh, mm. and I hope your listeners know Johnny Griffin, the, the great tenor player. Um, and he did an album, I think it was for Blue Note, called Introducing Johnny Griffin, and I think Cherokee is the first track. And it's a incredibly fast, just breakneck tempo, just impossible tempo. And there was something about, I listened to that every morning, and I somehow, 
the idea of playing fast or having a lot of chops, yeah, I think it's just kind of a state of mind. I mean, I don't really feel like my fingers are moving any faster. For some reason, to me, playing fast and playing slow, it, it, it all feels the same way to my, to my fingers. Well, I can just hear musicians listening to this gnashing their teeth. You make it sound so easy. <laughs> well, and you know, I mean, and like being being technically um, sound, being technically together was always something that was really important to me. I mean, the people who I looked up to in this music were technical monsters, you know. Again, Charlie Parker, Coltrane, Michael Brecker, David Liebman, you know. The actual act of playing the saxophone is not a hindrance. It's not an issue. It's just, uh, and the music just flows out of them. Mm. And that's what I have, you know, continued to strive for. Um, let's talk about um, your upcoming gig at the Monterey Jazz Festival. And you're bringing um, a trio called the Indopac Coalition. Right. The, uh, the Indopac Coalition is, is a trio of myself on alto saxophone and uh, Dan Weiss on tabla and drum set and Reza Basi on guitar. And, and Rez is uh, Pakistani-American. You're Indian-American, so that's the Indopac Coalition. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I, I guess technically that's, that's where the name comes from. You know, it, it's more of a joke. I mean, maybe you see it in California and you see it in Chicago and New York where you, you'll see a grocery store that carries South Asian products and it'll be called Indopac Grocers <laughs> or Indopac Appliances because they have, you know, 220 voltage toasters and stuff. You know, like, um, obviously, you know, India and Pakistan have a lot of problems getting along, and I, I would love to see a lot of those dissipate, especially uh, in the wake of the flooding in Pakistan and North India. But, but the title really comes out of this kind of this tongue-in-cheek of an Indian-American guy and a Pakistani-American guy getting together to play some music, and, you know, the irony of us being the guys playing Western instruments, and then we have this white Jewish American guy playing tabla. It's <laughs> <laughs> like has a, a lot of kind of fun irony, and I'm a big fan of irony. So, so, so who gets cashmere? Who gets cashmere? Who who knows? <laughs> I mean, in your band, <laughs> <laughs> we'll 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 all share in cashmere, I guess. You guys should wear cashmere sweaters. No, I'm just <laughs> exactly, cashmere scarves or something like that. Um, well, why don't we listen to uh, a track from um, the debut album of the Indopat Coalition. This is Opti. Uh, and I thought I'd play the title track. And, uh, you know, I could say this about all of the, the music I've heard of yours, but it, it certainly applies to this tune, that um, you've got these Indian influences, you've got the Western jazz tradition, and a lot of, a, a broad span of the Western jazz tradition, and it all feels like one perfect whole to me. Uh, you know, a, a completely integrated experience. ¶¶ 
Well, that's the nicest thing you could possibly say. <laughs> that's, that's what I've been trying to do for years, and I'm, and I'm glad that's what comes across, because, um, you know, I feel like the music is actually here and now and, and represents contemporary, multicultural America. Well, you've been um, exploring Indian music, I guess, deliberately uh, since the 1990s, and maybe there's something in your your early life, hearing that devotional music that your parents used to play when you were young, uh, that it integrated something of it uh, even earlier. But has it gotten to the point where it just is part of your musical vocabulary? You don't think about it? You don't think, oh, I'm going to play Indian style now, I'm going to throw in some Indian tonalities or melodic figures or something like that? Is it just you? Yeah, I feel like it's just me at this point. You know, in the same way that, you know, maybe when I was first studying bebop, I would have like two or three Charlie Parker licks that would play over and over again, verbatim. And eventually they just kind of morphed and now are probably not even recognizable as, as Charlie Parker being their source because it's become part of a, a vocabulary that's mine. When we listen to a piece like Opti, are we hearing that famous Indian uh, musical structure known as a raga? Uh, you know what, that's a really good question. You're hearing a, a collection of notes that's being treated like a raga, but actually, you know, that kind of the scalar motif that you hear there at the beginning that kind of runs through the whole tune mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is more something that comes out of maybe like Messian. Or, it's definitely not a traditional Indian raga, and it's not by any means a, a, a traditional normal kind of western scale it's um i i don't like the label really i mean it sounds so cold but it, it's something that's often referred to in, in 20th century music as being a synthetic scale uh-huh something you, um, you made up huh yeah exactly the, you know, the, the way you, you the way you turn it over and and vary it um reminds me of what indian musicians do in ragas the way they explore yeah, absolutely. A figure you know like and that. it has some real raga elements to it, um, in Raga theory, is, you know, there will be an ascending form and a descending form. So that's to say, you know, imagine playing a scale that's not the same coming down as it is going up. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of what makes Ragas beautiful is, is there are certain notes that are, that have greater emphasis, that have greater value that aren't necessarily completely obvious to the Western ear. And there are also notes that have certain gravities and pulls, you know, well, if you're playing this note, you have to go down. If you're playing this note, you have to go up. So, yeah, it's kind of funny because it, it sounds very Raga-like. It sounds almost like something Shakti would play or mm, something. Mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, but, it, but it's, not, it, it's not traditional at all. Now, now am I right in thinking... Um a raga is, you could think of it as a, a set of rules that uh, musicians can improvise within. And those rules involve the notes you can play, the kind of melodic patterns you can play, as you say, ascending patterns and descending patterns, uh, notes that are emphasized and notes that shouldn't be. In other words, a whole set of ground rules for this improvisation. Right, the, the melodic ground rules. Yeah. Right, yeah. exactly. That's a great way of describing it, you know, because in the West, we're 
people are quick to refer to them as modes and scales, and they're so much more complicated than that. I, you know, I heard Ravi Shankar, especially on his live albums, is great. He always he always describes what's going to be played. He plays the raga and explains it to the audience. And, um, and what he refers to them as being melodic constructs as opposed to scales or modes. And I mm-hmm. think that's, you know, that's a great way uh, of describing it. Yeah, certainly. Mm. Mm. It also dictates um, how the ornamentation occurs, you know. Um, and the interesting thing to keep in mind, too, is there's the raga, but then there's an actual composition. There's a song. And depending on what the song is about or what the mood of the song is, will also change how you treat that raga. Like, a raga on one song will... And the same raga on another song might imply completely different things. I see, I see. So within those rules, you could have a particular mood, you could have a particular song. Uh, right. Now, now, just to give a sense of the complexity, I mean, how do you internalize all these restrictions and then start to improvise on it? Well, I mean, I think it's a lifelong process. I think, um, you know, if one were to be trained traditionally in, in classical Indian music, you know, you might spend a year on one raga and you might end up only working on singing it even if if voice isn't your concentration so that internalization is it goes very much to the core of your being i mean you're gonna work on this you know repetition for hours a day for for days on end before you're even allowed to touch your instrument um you know i i guess i've had to take a few shortcuts because say you know, um, I'm interested in too many things to actually allow myself to go to India for 20 years and <laughs> develop like a, a guru, you know, disciple kind of relationship. And and I think it's great when when people are able to do that. I think Dan Weiss is a great example of that. I mean, he's he's done that with Tabla. You know, he he has like a real. Uh, amazing, beautiful teacher-student relationship with with his guru, with with Samir Chatterjee, and and really took the bull by the horns. You know, he's not he's not a dabbler. He's a real tabla player. And I, you know, so why don't we uh, you know why don't we uh, pick up from what you just said and hear a little bit of Dan Weiss soloing uh, on tabla. This is from a uh, a piece called uh, and and correct my pronunciation if I screw it up. Vandana Trayi. Yeah, Vandana Trai. Yeah, Vandana this is Trai. the only tune on the album that I didn't write. This is actually a Ravi Shankar composition that I found just to be incredibly beautiful and, and really wanted to record it. Well, here's the part where, where Dan steps out.
So that was Dan Weiss on Tabla uh, with the Indopat Coalition um, from the album Opti. Um, Redresh, you want to say a few words about what Dan was doing there? Well, what was Dan doing there? Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I think it's just a, a beautifully constructed solo, you know. Um, the melody really comes through in his, in his soloing because the tabla has t real tonality to it. Absolutely, yeah. You know, tonality, you know, key center, all of that is, is very crucial with, uh, with a lot of Indian percussion. Um, you know, and I think, you know, any good drum solo should be like that regardless, regardless uh. of of where in the world it, it, it occurs. And, you know, the great thing about Dan is obviously he does that on top of but he also brings that to the drum set, too, when, when I, I play in that situation with him. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what else to say about it. I, I, you know, I think it's, it's, a, it's a really beautiful solo, and he kind of nailed it right off the bat in, in, in one take, which was <laughs> kind of amazing. And, uh, and it's a metrically interesting piece. It's... Um, Ravi Shankar's original is not, is it in seven? I can't remember. But anyway, my setting of it is, is, uh, is, is in seven. And the part that he solos on is actually kind of a, a funny distortion because it's, it, it is this Indian seven, but there's also kind of a, 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 something related to giant steps happening there. Not, not in terms of chord progression, but in some other sense? No, well, there's, the melodic figure that he's soloing over is actually almost identical to the root movement of Countdown. Oh, okay. Um, uh, is this the sort of thing um, we can expect to, to hear at uh, the Monterey Jazz Festival? Absolutely, yeah, definitely. The, the band has obviously grown. Um, because we've, we've done a lot of touring since the album was recorded. The album came out... Um, about two years ago now. Now I wanted to showcase some of the other uh, the other two members, yourself and uh, Rez Abasi, the other two members of the trio. And I thought a good piece for doing that would be IIT. Um, let's hear uh, an excerpt of that. Sure. <laughs> So we're listening to a piece called IIT from the album Opti by the Indopat Coalition Trio, uh, led by my guest, the alto saxophonist Rudresh Mahanthapa. Um, and IIT, by the way, is the name of the Indian Institutes of Technology, a bunch of schools that are sort of the equivalent of MIT here in the U.S., uh, technical institutions. And this is a, a really technical piece, right, Rudresh? It is. It is a technical piece, but, you know, I think... Uh... With all the complexity, it's also important to me that that no matter how complex any music I write is, I you know I want it to groove and have momentum, and I hope that uh, all that comes across simultaneously. Mixed 
structure for, for this tune is, is a little bit mathematically complicated. Uh, you can think of it as in 4-4, but it's actually broken up into 6-5-4-3-2-3-4-5. Now, um, partway into the piece, we get to hear a really um, spectacular uh, guitar solo by, by Reza Bassi, and I'd like to play just a bit of that as well. Great. talk about Rez and his playing? I mean, Rez is a real virtuoso guitar player. Uh, he's getting more recognition now. I think he's deserved a lot more recognition than he's received in the past. You know, he can kind of do anything. Speaking of virtuosity, we also get to hear a, a pretty smoking solo by you two. <laughs> well, thank you. obviously allows players to really show off their their technical chops. Do you have any aesthetic feelings about when when it feels good to just go all out and when it maybe it, it makes more sense to hold back? Uh, I feel like I'm getting a better sense of that as I get older. I feel like we're always surrounded by an older generation that's telling us that less is more. Um, mm-hmm. But I think everyone just has to come into that on their own. I don't think that's something that can be really learned. And I'm, I'm definitely beginning to see, see the value of that uh, with my own groups. And, and, I, and I feel like playing as a sideman a little more as I have recently, which I really enjoy doing, but I've only really been getting called to play as a sideman only over the last year or two. I'm beginning to see, um, you know, the value of making, making more out of less. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, can uh, attendees at, at the Monterey Jazz Festival sort of expect then to hear maybe a mix of, of um, you know, real virtuoso tunes and maybe some some ballads and some other kinds of expression? <laughs> well, well, we'll just have to see how the sun is shining <laughs> on us that day, or the stars that are shining on us that night, I should say. Um, is this your first time at the Monterey Jazz Festival? It is actually. And, yeah. and what are you? What are your thoughts on that? I'm really excited, you know. I mean, I've been hearing about Monterey for 
you know, gosh, since I was in college, I think, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm happy to be a part of it. I'm happy that, uh, to be invited. Um, you know, it's always a, an amazing cast of, of bands and musicians there and, you know, and I'm honored to be part of that. You know, we, um, we we heard that piece just a, a little while ago called IIT, and we talked a bit about its its complicated rhythmic structure and, and highly mathematical you know composition. Uh, you are something of a, a science and math geek, I understand. Yeah, to, <laughs> to some degree. You know, I grew up in a very academic family. My dad is a physics professor. Oh, and yeah, my whole family is scientists. My older brother is a is a neuroscientist. My younger brother is a chemistry chemical engineering professor. My uh, proclivities were more towards math and, and number theory, and um, I think if I if I hadn't pursued music professionally, I probably would have pursued something number related, whether that's number theory or economics or you know any number of things. You know, but the interesting thing to me though is, is that you know I see so many relationships between between math and music and. You know, and it's not a particularly new idea, you know. I think um, composers going back as far as, you know, Dufay and, you know, the Gregorian chants and, and such and through Bach and Beethoven and, and through the 20th and Bartok and um, and through the history of Western classical music, you, the, you see a lot of manipulation of, of space and interval and pitch that's very much math-related. And then you see all the math that occurs within um, Indian music, especially, uh, I say, with my bias, I say especially South Indian music in, in, in the way rhythm is dealt with. I mean, it's, all the great South Indian percussionists, they're doing math at a, very quickly at a very high level, you know, and, and making it groove all at the same time. And all the musicians that I look up to um, simultaneously play from the seat of their pants and from their brain. You know, I think, uh, again, not to sound like a broken record, but, but I think Coltrane and Bird are great examples of people that are playing with a, a great amount of emotion and a great amount of intellect all at the same time. And that's that's the kind of musician I want to be. Mm. You explicitly combined... Um math and music uh, in, in an album called Codebook. Right. Um, let's listen to the first track on it called The Decider. Now, this is a reference, or isn't it, to, to George W. Bush? Yeah, you know, it was actually untitled, <laughs> and, um, but the day that this music was being, you know, performed for the first time, premiered here in New York, was George W. had, he was either the day before or that day declared himself the decider, and of course everybody was in stitches. <laughs> and so you named your song the decider. Yeah, it had nothing to do with the musical content, but it was just so funny that I just had to run with it. Like here, I have a tune with no title. We're calling it the decider. <laughs> Thank you. 
and Rajesh, this piece is is mathematical, and there's something going on here. Um, yeah, the there is. Realm. Uh, you know, the melodic content is is based on um, these interval groupings that Bartok played around with a lot compositionally, where. Um, Maybe your listeners are familiar with the the golden ratio or golden section. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, it's thought of as an ideal proportion between length and width, and it's something that's used in a lot of uh, architecture. And it's also present in the way pine cones grow and the way a lot of flowers grow. And the ideal faces are supposed to fall into these proportions as well. And it's something that occurs in nature a lot, but it has a very much very much a mathematical basis. And it's something that a lot of composers have played around with as well. It's made up of these three-note melodic cells that are all kind of bridged together, but those, those melodic cells are based on the golden section. I don't want to get too technical about it. Um, so that's happening in the melody, and some of the rhythmic stuff is actually Dan Weiss's name and Morse code. <laughs> um, you know, people talk about odd meters. People talk about playing in 7 and 5 and 13 and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. One of the fundamental ways of breaking that down is, is thinking of groups of three and groups of two and how those, those line up. And one of the easy organic ways of thinking of the threes and twos is really thinking of them as longs and shorts. So I kind of took that idea um, and used Morse code very deliberately where, okay, well, let's take someone's name and we're going to put it in Morse code and then the longs are going to be three beats and the shorts are going to be two beats. And, um, and, and what do you come up with? Do you come up with anything interesting? And throughout the music and code book, there are all sorts of kind of mathematical manipulations or cryptographic manipulations. But, but it's important to say that, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, prep work that went into coming up with musical material from these kind of cold, hard, uh, mathematical and, and cryptographic sources. You know, there was a lot of stuff that just sounded horrible. It's like, oh, wow, well, you know, Mahantapan Morse code sounds awful. So <laughs> let's, uh, that's not going to work, you know. And you know, there are other things that happen on the album, too. Like, um, when I first met my wife, the, the numbers 36 and 37 kept coming up for some reason, in all sorts of weird ways. Her office was at 36 West 37th Street, and then, you know, on our first date, somehow, like, the total for the check was 3736. It was very, very weird. So there's also a tune on the album called Wait It Through, where the melody is primarily made up of intervals of thirds and sixths and sevenths, used in this very kind of serial way. But again, to try to make something that's interesting that grew. Well, it has to sound good. So, so I guess the question is, does all this playing around with mathematics help you create new pieces that sound good in a way that you otherwise wouldn't have come up with? Or in the end, are you always going to go back to what you like and what sounds good and, and the math is really just window dressing? <laughs> so that's a good question. I think for me, it's always been good to, to challenge myself to try to take something that's um, outside of the musical realm and try to make music with it because that's, it just pushes me to compose something that I wouldn't normally compose, mm-hmm. even create some vocabulary as an improviser that 
would not normally occur to me. It's just a different sort of creative process. You know, somebody told me once that, you know, a lot of people write the same five tunes over and over again. I, this is a way of avoiding that trap. Uh, well, I thought I'd, I'd finish up with your latest album called Apex, and you got to work with some, some really great jazz musicians. Bunky Green, alto saxophonist, who some of our um, listeners may not know. Yeah, Bunky Green is, um, I don't know, how would you describe him? An underground legend, maybe? Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard to find his stuff, but he's a really important figure in uh, in the jazz world and, and a really important figure in, in the alto saxophone world. Uh, he was a young virtuoso, kind of coming out of the hard bop tradition, you know, in the 60s. Uh, one album that people can find, I think, is called Testifying Time, that's a uh, a two-alto record with him and Sonny Stitt. He also replaced Jackie McLean and Charles Mingus's band, mm -hmm. um, but that band never recorded, so a lot of people oh. never that. And then he made some albums in the 70s for a label called Vanguard Records, a Chicago jazz label that was more pushing him to into more of like uh, an instrumental R&B, soul, kind of a Grover Washington vibe of sorts, which wasn't necessarily what he wanted to do, so it's hard to really hear his voice. And he just has a really unique uh, approach and, and uh, sound and vocabulary that, that he really developed that is, that's quite remarkable. So, yeah, let's listen to a piece, and I thought um, my pick w was Eastern Echoes, I thought would be a nice one to play. Yeah, Eastern Echoes is really cool. This, this, Eastern Echoes is a composition of bunkies. We... We kind of split the writing on this. I, I wrote half of the tunes, and he wrote half of the tunes, and everything was written specifically for this group. It's, well, almost everything. But it was important to us to not rework older compositions, but write for this fresh experience. And so we're going to hear Eastern Echoes. Uh, and by the way, the, the band features uh, Jason Morand on piano, uh, Francois Moutin on bass, um, Jack DeJanet on some of the uh, pieces on drums, but uh, on this one it's Damian Reed. Um, and, of course, yourself uh, and Bunky Green, both on alto. So, Redresh, this piece, Eastern Echoes, um, featuring you and Bunky Green on alto. Um, we, heard, we heard Bunky there starting in and then you joining, trading, trading licks? Yeah, right, exactly. Um, he starts and we kind of trade back and forth, and then we, we take turns playing the melody as well. And um, You know, a lot of the music that we wrote for this album was really the kind of 
to kind of emphasize the similarities in in our approaches to some degree, but but within that to to highlight the differences as well. And because there's a lot of kind of basis for vocabulary that we share, but you know. I'm almost 40, and, and Bunky is 75, and we've come into this music with very different histories and very different experiences. But we've we've kind of found a, a, a similar terrain, and uh, I think this tune brings a lot of that out very well. You, you know, um, I don't know if at some point someone's going to come up with a name for what you're doing, but it does seem to me that you've you've nudged jazz along, you know, and proved once again that jazz is a growing, evolving musical form that just sort of continues to soak up every kind of music out there and, and still remains jazz. Yeah, you know, that's, I think that's the, the, one of the beautiful, fundamental aspects of, of, of this music. It absorbs whatever it encounters and um, ideally always speaks to the, the current times that we live in. Well, thanks a lot, Redresh. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, thank you, Robert. It was a pleasure. And Rudresh Mahantapa and the Indo-Pak Coalition will be performing at this year's Monterey Jazz Festival. It starts this coming Friday, September 17th, and runs through the weekend. We here at KUSP will be broadcasting many of the festival concerts beginning Friday night and continuing on Saturday and Sunday. Some of those concerts will be broadcast live, others taped for delayed broadcast. So for complete details on our schedule, go to our website, KUSP.org. This has been the 7th Avenue Project on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly, signing off until next week.